Welcome to Breast Cancer Update. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. Dr. Melvin Silverstein is a legendary figure in breast cancer surgery, and in our most recent conversation, Dr. S. vented his current passions in the field, beginning with an increasingly discussed surgical oncology topic. Absolutely. The hottest thing in breast surgery is oncoplastic surgery. It went from virtually non-existent in 2000, 2001 to a booming business now. American Society of Breast Surgeons runs a meeting every year. And at that meeting, we have a course and the course is sold out in one day. 500 people sign up out of, say, the 1,000 people who come to take the oncoplastic course. Everybody wants to do it. And all of the requests I get for speaking all over the country now, whereas 10 years ago, they were all about DCIS. Now, their first thing that they want to talk about is oncoplastic surgery. Can you kind of review some of the issues there? Oncoplastic surgery is a combination of oncologic surgery as well as plastic surgery with two opposing goals that are in a tug of war with each other. The goal of cancer surgery is excise the tumor with the best margins you can get. The bigger, the better. Margins are like money. The more you have, the better off you are. And Cosmetic surgery doesn't take away a lot of breast tissue. To get the best results from an excisional biopsy, you take the littlest amount of tissue. The surgeon has to tread a fine line here so he doesn't fall over into taking too much or not enough. And that's the real issue here is it's a philosophy that surgeons have never been trained with, and that is that the appearance of the breast after cancer surgery matters. Nobody ever taught young surgeons that. They said, look, get the tumor out at all costs. We don't care what it takes. We don't care if it deforms the breast. doesn't make any difference. Just get the tumor out because you're going to save their life. We don't teach young surgeons that anymore. I'd like to see you go through some examples of even cases or situations where this comes into play. But before that, how has this concept been accepted by other investigators, other surgical leaders? In the beginning, those who – it's kind of like everything else that occurs in medicine. If you don't do it, it can't be very good. But what happens is that I started doing this 20 years ago because I was in a group that had two plastic surgeons – And it became apparent to me that they were doing all sorts of exciting things in their cosmetic business that I might rob and bring over to the oncologic business. So I started a long time ago. And our goal simply was to just widely excise tumors and get good margins. And I didn't really talk about it much until I started coming to meetings, maybe the late 90s, early 2000s. I started to talk about it. And there was a slow increase in interest into it to a point to where it exploded. And I think the real explosion occurred when the American Society of Breast Surgeons started a course. And we didn't know that there was any market for it. And when you're doing the course, what are some of the things that you present to them? Well, I present to them a whole range of different techniques that they've never learned before. When you're in a surgical residency program, there isn't a lot of attention paid to breast surgery, and there isn't a lot of interest in it. It's really a stepchild of general surgery. I mean, young general surgeons, they want to learn about pancreatic surgery and colon surgery. They want to do the big surgery, vascular surgery and heart surgery. And the breast surgery is, you know, kind of left over for the younger level interns and residents. 
And when why you get a fellow, they hardly know anything about breast surgery. We teach them right from the beginning all these exciting new operations. And it blows their minds when they see the different things that we can do. In fact, the biggest selling program of our fellowship at USC, University of Southern California, is the oncoplastic component of the fellowship. All of the surgeons there are trained in oncoplastic surgery because they're all trained by me. And that's why people want to come to USC other than the weather. I think the weather and the oncoplastic program would be what makes that program as powerful as it is. Can you give some examples of actual techniques that you've utilized or that you're teaching in this course? Right. The techniques all have names. Typically, a normal breast surgery is a surgeon would put a little incision over the lesion, just take it out and close the incision, not removing any skin. Most oncoplastic techniques remove skin so that when the skin is removed, you have to reshape the breast. And it requires actually marking and measuring and geometric planning. You have to understand the anatomy of the breast, the function of the breast, what is an attractive shape, what's not an attractive shape, what tricks can you use to get out the lesion. For example, one thing we use all the time in large-breasted women is a reduction. When you do a reduction, you're typically taking three, 400 grams, 500 grams of tissue out of the breast, and you can take very large areas out. So oncoplastic surgery allows you to take a much bigger piece than ever before. We actually studied this and weighed the specimens. So when our surgeons were doing just an incision over the lesion and taking out the specimen, they averaged about 20 grams. When we did an oncoplastic case, we averaged about 90 to 100 grams, about five times the size. That gives you a much better chance of taking out a larger lesion. So there are many cases where other surgeons have told the patients that I see, you need a mastectomy. Your lesion's too big. It's multifocal. You can't get it out without deforming the breast. When I see that patient, that's exactly the patient that I want to see. I want to convert her mastectomy into a breast conservation procedure with an oncoplastic technique. So reductions are one technique. Another technique is called the crescent mastopexy, where you take a crescent-shaped piece above the nipple. It's going to raise the nipple areolar complex a number of centimeters, depending on how big the crescent is, and allow you access to virtually any place in the upper half of the breast or the central portion of the breast. And there's about 10 other named procedures. And you know, it's interesting. You've worked with us when we've done American Society of Breast Surgeons satellite meetings. And we did one last year where we actually did a patterns of care study prior to the meeting. And then at the meeting, we discussed what are surgeons doing and what are investigators doing. A lot of times they lined up similarly. But one area that we saw a big discrepancy was the use of neoadjuvant therapy, either chemo or endocrine therapy, to facilitate breast conservation. We saw much more use of that in investigator surgeons than in general surgeons, as you sort of would imagine. But I mean, it was a dramatic difference. It was a little bit bothersome. Yeah. You know, I think there's a reason for it. When you look at the real world, it's enormously competitive. Surgeons have a patient. They've got a chance to treat that patient. The patient needs a mastectomy. They may tend to do that. If you explore with the patient the fact that she really wants to save her breast, then, of course, the right thing to do is give her chemotherapy first and then completely rework her up at the end of that with an MRI, with ultrasound, with a mammogram again, and then figure out, is there something I can do to save her breast? And we've used neoadjuvant chemotherapy extensively 
to convert mastectomies into breast-preserving procedures because in the olden days, all you had was neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Now you've got neoadjuvant chemo combined with oncoplastic surgery. The two of them together allow you to take, in many cases, 40 or 50 percent of the breast away, get a beautiful cosmetic result, big wide margins, you know, and a really happy patient in the end. Yeah, and the other thing we saw in the survey was that the lack of use of neoadjuvant therapy in this situation increased a lot with age. So they didn't use it that much even like around age 50, but once you get up to 65 or so, you really saw a lot of just sending patients straight for mastectomy, reflecting back on the whole history of mastectomy versus lumpectomy and the perception that maybe older women are not as interested in breast conservation. Is that what you've observed in your own practice? I certainly have observed a trend in that direction. However, if you explore with the older patient the chance of saving her breast, the chance of doing a cosmetic operation, at first it may sound ridiculous to them. And as you talk about it, it becomes very interesting. We show them pictures. And then suddenly it's a much more appealing Procedure. I think a lot of this is in the driver's seat of the surgeon. And if the surgeon pushes them quickly toward mastectomy, that's pretty much what happens to those patients. The surgeon's got to be open-minded, has to be aware of all the available tools. There's another thing going on in medical oncology, I think, that really relates to this issue, which is over the last few years, increasing realization that, because you mentioned chemo, In women who have ER-positive tumors, a lot of times they don't respond that well to chemo. And then particularly if they have really high ER levels, they might actually do better on neoadjuvant hormone therapy. That's something we haven't seen that much in the United States. But now with the Oncotype coming out and this whole sensitization to this chemo issue, now I'm starting to hear investigators talk more about, okay, well, we've got this lady. She's got very high ER maybe we should try neoadjuvant hormones rather than chemo. What about your oncologists? Are they doing that at all? I've never in my entire life had a case of that. But I must say that when I went to Europe 10 years ago, I saw them doing that. And I came back to this country and I asked my colleagues, and said, oh, we don't do that. And it never really gained any momentum in this country. Maybe now is the time that we've got so many better tools out there to tell us the sensitivities of different tumors. Obviously, there's been a big change in what oncologists are doing based on archetype. I mean, in the past, you had no negative tumors and they were more than one centimeter. They got chemo. I'm assuming you're seeing that in your practice, too, that now there's a lot more rethinking of whether or not they actually need chemo or benefit by it. Oh, absolutely. Oncotype is used, I don't want to say routinely, but it's used all the time for any case that's even the slightest bit equivocal. I guess the other thing is that there are a lot of surveys have been done looking at, okay, what is your plan? And then what do you think you're going to do? But how was that changed by the Oncotype? And, you know, like a quarter of the cases, the docs make different decisions. Either they give chemo when they wouldn't have given chemo, and more likely they don't give chemo and when they maybe would have, say, five years ago. I think that's been a good thing for patients, frankly. Absolutely. So let's get back to local therapy. And you sent me an email not too long ago about the editorial you wrote with tremendous concern and, as you stated, outrage about some data in terms of breast biopsy. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Let me tell you what prompted that. There was an article that came out in the Journal of American College of Surgeons. Actually, I was sent to review the article. 
And the article came from a major teaching hospital in New York City. And it showed that among their private practice breast surgeons and private practice general surgeons, there was a 36% rate of open biopsy as the first diagnostic test for breast abnormality. So let me repeat that so that I get this absolutely clear. More than one-third of the diagnostic biopsies were open surgical biopsies. So I thought this number was appallingly high. The truth is the needle companies for years have been telling me it's around 40%. And I always thought that was a trick of the needle companies to get people to use more needles and do less open biopsies. But here finally was a paper from a major medical center in New York City where it's very advanced medicine with tremendously demanding patients and almost 40% of the diagnostic first attempts to make the diagnosis were open surgical biopsies in an operating room. So I thought this was terrible. So I wrote an editorial that was published right along with the paper and it's called Where's the Outrage? And I basically said, look, when the women were angry with radical mastectomy, they yelled and screamed, and we changed, and we went to modified radical. And then we went to breast preservation. We went from the one-stage operation where we did a mastectomy to the two-stage operation where we made the diagnosis first. Now we've got a similar kind of a situation here where – 40% of the diagnostic biopsies throughout the United States, because I certainly think this must reflect the entire America, are open biopsies. That translates to almost 600,000 open biopsies per year when the vast bulk of those diagnoses could be made with a needle. And that's what I think has to happen. I think the operating room ought to be reserved for a definitive surgical operation. And I think the surgeon's goal ought to be Go to the operating room one time, do it right, get the margins right. You don't have to come back again. And in the editorial, you said that you think the rate should be less than 5%. Is that what it is in your own practice? Yeah, it is. It's even less than that. I mean, if the surgeon can do his or her own needle biopsy with ultrasound or they have good radiologists who they trust and will allow them to do the cases, then it ought to be close to – Almost, I don't want to say zero, but it ought to be close to zero, one or two or three percent, a very low number. What do you think is going on here? Well, to be perfectly honest, before there were needle biopsies, I used to do about 225 to 250 open biopsies a year, of which one-fifth of them, 20 percent of them were cancer and 80 percent were not. Since there are needle biopsies now, I personally have lost 250 cases a year. Multiply that times whatever you get for a biopsy, $1,000, 500 whatever it is, it turns out to be a large amount of money. And I hate to say it, but times are tough. And it may just be that many surgeons simply don't want to refer the diagnostic part of the procedure out and would rather do the operation and fool themselves and say, oh, I can make a better diagnosis with an open biopsy than you can with a needle. And that, of course, is not true. It's been well studied that a needle biopsy is just as accurate. How much interest is there in the clinical investigator surgical community in dealing with this issue? Hardly any. The issue is there's a number of ways to make the diagnosis, and most people leave it up to the surgeon and the patient to figure out the best way. What about PBI? Well, that's a real growing field. 
I think the future of partial breast irradiation is going to be intraoperative irradiation. You're doing that, right? You're looking yeah, at it? Yeah, we're doing that at USC for the last four years, and I'm putting it into Hogue right now. We'll have it up and running this year. How have you found the procedure? We like it very much. It's virtually uncomplicated. There are no side effects to it as far as we've seen. In the first 40 cases that we did, one patient had a red breast for about five or six days after this procedure, and then it went away. Other than that, there were no problems whatsoever. And how much OR time does it add? It adds about an hour of an operating hour. time. And is this the target apparatus? Or? Yes. The one that I've used is the IntraBeam, which is part of the target trial. But there is a couple of other systems out there. So bottom line is they're done at the end of the procedure. Yeah, I think. And it's the easiest randomized trial I've ever been involved in because you tell the patients the two arms of the trial are six to seven weeks of standard radiation therapy which works, we've had it around for 25 years, we know it works, versus an extra hour in the operating room. And people say, where do I sign up? (laughs) Can I donate money to get on that arm of the trial? What can I do? Because it's so profoundly convenient. And the concept of, of course, partial breast radiation is very appealing to patients. And it makes sense when you realize that most of your failures are at or near the primary. It makes sense to concentrate your treatment at or near the primary, which is what partial breast radiation does. What are the kinds of patients you think are best suited for PBI? I think as you begin a program, and I know a great deal about this because I've just sat down with a group at my new hospital to write a protocol. And clearly, when you bring a new technology into a facility, you want it to be safe and you want it to work. And so I think the ideal patients to begin with are the patients who are least likely to recur. Therefore, they ought to be older. They ought to have small tumors. They ought to have no bad things like no lymphovascular invasion. They should be node negative. They ought to have nice margins, wide margins. How about DCIS? I think DCIS can be included if you excise it with good margins. You've obviously brought up the issue for a long time about whether radiation therapy actually needs to be done in some of these patients. And so the closer they are to that situation, I guess the easier it might be to consider something like this. Right. I've got 600 patients or almost 600 in my own series of DCS patients treated with excision alone. And that group of patients probably would be an excellent group for adding IORT. Then I wouldn't have to be such a terrible guy always saying negative things about radiation therapy for DCIS. Well, I mean, and if they are doing something that really is unnecessary. If it's an extra hour in the OR, it's not the same as coming for six or seven weeks. I mean, it almost reminds me a little bit of the Oncotype thing in terms of chemo. You know, will you get a situation where you really think it's probably not going to help somebody, but for some reason you feel like you really need to do it, let's not make the patient super sick if you're not even sure they need it in the first place. I was thinking, too, and that the other thing I was going to mention when we talking about new adjuvant therapy and that survey we did, There was one other thing that we saw that was really interesting in terms of difference between the investigators and docs in practice, which was when did they do sentinel node in a neoadjuvant case? And as I'm sure you would predict, the investigators in general did after the neoadjuvant therapy. I don't know. When do you normally do it, incidentally? I've done them both ways, but I think what I see pretty much standard in the community is that we do the sentinel node afterward. That seems to be what happens, you know, 95 times out of 100. Is that what you do? That's what I do, yeah. But I think, let me tell you how things have changed. I pretty much know what's going on in most patients all the time 
upfront because we're very aggressive diagnosers. Every single patient that I see that has a diagnosis of cancer gets an axillary ultrasound, gets an MRI, and gets a needle biopsy in any funny-looking axillary nodes. So most of the time, I know the axillary node's positive. And if I'm going straight to surgery, I do a node dissection. If I'm going to neoadjuvant therapy first, then I talk to that medical oncologist. And I think what I'm seeing is that half the medical oncologists say, nope, do a node dissection, even if I had a complete response. The other half are saying, if I've had a complete response, do a sentinel node. And the trend is toward more sentinel nodes after neoadjuvant chemotherapy. That's the trend now. But I have to listen to the referring medical oncologists and kind of do what they want. But the movement is away from axillary node dissection. In general, how often do you see that you diagnose an occult positive node because of the ultrasound? I'm seldom fooled in the operating room. I mean, once I get to the operating room, if I've done all of these tests, I think my positive sentinel node rate is probably in the around 5% range. It's very low because we've looked so carefully in the axilla beforehand. Whereas when sentinel nodes began, my positive sentinel node rate was about 25 to 30% because we didn't really evaluate the axilla up front. Now we've taken all those positive cases out, and so most of them are going to be negative when you finally get there. And actually in the survey, what we saw was that the investigators were almost all using sentinel node after neoadjuvant therapy. The docs in practice, it was really interesting. 40% did it before, 40% did it after, and 20% didn't do it. So it seems like there's a lot of disparity there in terms of this question and situation. Yeah. I had an interesting case just like this a few months ago. A patient had a large primary tumor and a positive node by needle biopsy. She got neoadjuvant chemotherapy. It was palpable and positive by needle biopsy. And she got neoadjuvant chemotherapy with a phenomenal response. Everything melted away so that the MRI looked like it was a normal woman. So we put wires in the breast around the clip, and we did a sentinel node biopsy. Turned out there were three sentinel nodes. They were negative on frozen section. We did no other dissection. And on permanent section, there were scattered IHC-positive cells in all three of those nodes. So the issue came up, are these positive nodes? Is this debris that's left over? Should you go back and do a node dissection? And a lot of interesting discussion followed that at our tumor board. Ultimately, we didn't go back and do anything in that axilla. Patient's going to get radiotherapy to her breast and very likely they'll probably put a little in the axilla. Another thing that's happened in terms of neoadjuvant therapy over the last few years, I think, is an increasing use of trastuzumab and those that are HER2 positive. And of course, they're going to get chemo also, but chemo trastuzumab. And some of the reports, for example, Buzzdar and MD Anderson's reported a smaller series, you know, with 50% complete response rates. What are you seeing in terms of, I don't know how often you see locally advanced or other situations where you're seeing trastuzumab used as neoadjuvant therapy? Very high response rate. I don't know if it's as high as 50%, but certainly 30 35% complete response rates where we cannot really find any viable cancer when we go back and do the surgery. An issue comes up then, let's say you go back and you find absolutely nothing. You find some necrotic dead tissue. Does that patient really need radiation therapy? 
That's come up a few times. And of course, at this point in our life, we are irradiating those patients. And we don't think those are good patients for intraoperative radiation therapy. But the truth is, we don't really know. And I think the trend I've witnessed over the last 30 years is simply towards less local treatment, less surgery, less radiotherapy, and better and more directed chemotherapy. Let's talk about a couple of the cases that you had that, you know, I asked if you could prepare. The first is this 45-year-old woman with three primary lesions. Right. I saw a woman recently with three primary lesions on MR, and she was told, you've got to have a mastectomy. You've got a multifocal disease. The three primary lesions were all in the same segment. So theoretically, one might be able to get them all out. How did she present? She presented with a single palpable mass. But when she was worked up, she really had three completely different cancers probably within a sea of DCIS. You know, and I can't argue with the fact that probably she is a good candidate for a mastectomy, and that's probably what she ought to have. But when she came to me, the reason she found her way to me, I was her third or fourth doctor, was because she really didn't want a mastectomy, and she heard that I was the kind of guy that might entertain a lesser procedure. So we sent her for neoadjuvant chemotherapy. We got very good response, not complete response, but shrinkage of all those lesions. And then we did a very wide segmental kind of resection using oncoplastic techniques, and we found three small cancers and widely clear margins and all negative nodes in that patient. So what was the whole initial area, the diameter of the whole oh, area? About eight centimeters. Eight centimeters. Yeah, it covered about eight centimeters. And that it's always been an issue is how big is too big for breast preservation? And clearly, when you look at the randomized trials, the largest patients in any of those trials were five centimeters. Most of them were four centimeters or even smaller than that. And so if you want data, there are no data that says you can save somebody who starts off with an eight centimeter area. However, when those trials were done, there wasn't neoadjuvant chemotherapy, there wasn't MRI, there weren't any of the tools that we have today. So I don't want to, say, apply 1970s data to people in 2009 and say, well, you're not a candidate for it because of this. So I've always felt that if you could do a big, wide operation and get clear margins and eliminate all trace of the disease on MRI and mammography, and if it took neoadjuvant chemotherapy to help you do that, that would be a good thing to do. What was her breast size? It was fairly large. So you actually removed the 8-centimeter area? Yeah, I did. That's not uncommon for me to take an 8- or 10-centimeter segment out with an oncoplastic procedure. What did you do specifically oncoplastically? This lady had what we call a hemi-batwing operation, which was a great big ellipse combined with a crescent. And then on the other side, she had a crescent mastopexy for symmetry. One of the things that I do now all the time is I operate on the opposite good breast, and I give the patient a gift. And the gift is that I'm going to make both breasts a little bit smaller, a little bit rounder, and I'm going to give you symmetry after the surgery. And the patients, I have to be honest with you, they love this particular approach. Now, this situation, though, with having residual tumor after neoadjuvant therapy, what did you do about sentinel node in her, incidentally? That lady had negative nodes after her chemotherapy. So you did the sentinel node afterwards? Yeah. There was another patient that you were going to discuss, a 50-year-old woman who had a large area of calcifications. Can you talk about her? Right. That was a patient that was also told she could not have a breast-conserving procedure because she had a needle biopsy which showed a low-grade DCIS and calcification spanning six or maybe even seven centimeters. And so she was a case that we brought in. We did an MRI on her, and the MRI really didn't support 
six centimeters of detail. It showed a much smaller area. So we then did stereotactic biopsies on the periphery of the calcifications, and they were actually benign. So we said, you know what, let's take a chance. We can do an oncoplastic operation. And I do this all the time, where you think you ought to do a mastectomy. I say, let me try this oncoplastic operation. Worst case, I fail. I'll get involved margins, and then we'll do the mastectomy through the same incision. Best case, I will excise this and I will get clear margins and we will have done a breast-preserving operation instead of a mastectomy. In this particular case, she ended up having only a small area of DCIS and a great big area of benign fibrocystic calcifications. And so she was actually very well excised with this operation. So I'm not afraid to fail with these oncoplastic operations. I just keep the patient in the loop. What that patient usually ends up with most of the time it works. She ends up with a bilateral procedure where the breasts have been made smaller on each side and she's got breast preserving instead of a mastectomy and a reconstruction and she's happier. Or she ends up with a smaller breast on the opposite side and I have to go back and do a mastectomy and reconstruct her on the cancer side. But that actually is the minority of cases. Now for both of these two patients, what was the cosmetic outcome? Pretty good. There's two outcomes. There's my impression of the outcome and, <laughs> right. and her impression. Right. And in both of these cases, we were both very satisfied. And the, unfortunately, this is an audio tape, but if you could see the visuals with this, you'd be blown away by some of these outcomes. Anything else you want to add to what you said today? Well, I mean, I'm still very interested in DCS excision without radiation DCIS. There, How many times have we talked about that? In the past, many times. <laughs> How do you think that's finally settled out? My impression is that, in a sense, you know, you've had you and the NSABP, and you know, there's always panels and debates that go on there. It seems like, to me, it's kind of settled out sort of in the middle, but maybe kind of more shifting towards your side. I feel totally vindicated now and think that I have actually won the battle. Let me tell you why. The NSABP and the prospective randomized trials have said radiation therapy for everybody. I haven't taken the opposite end saying radiation therapy for no one. I've said selected patients can be treated with excision alone. And I think I'm vindicated now because the NCCN in the 2008 guidelines has a new line in the algorithm and it's excision alone, no lymph node studying, no anything, just excision alone for highly selected patients small tumors, well-excised, older patients. So that's what I've been saying for the last 15 years. Now it's a real thing in a respected set of guidelines. 